Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode, our 20th, on August 17th, 2022. Earlier this month, the Fed got conflicting economic feedback an unexpectedly strong jobs report, followed by an unexpectedly weak inflation report. At the same time, financial conditions seem to be easing, with stocks resuming their upward march. The 10-year Treasury yield, which closed 2021 at 1.51% and peaked at 3.48% on June 14th, has now settled in at a range below 3%. The yield curve has had a massive move upward and has gotten flatter since the end of the year. We now have a long break before the next Fed meeting on September 20th and 21st. So how might the current environment affect the course of policy? And what might it mean for market conditions? Today's episode of Macro Markets brings this situation into greater focus. The macro segment features my discussion with Matt Bush, Guggenheim's U.S. economist, who will review the latest CPI and jobs data and update us on his views on recession timing and the possible progression of policy from here. In our markets segment, Aditya Agrawal, head of the agency mortgage-backed securities sector team, will fill us in on developments in his sector, which is directly affected by the Fed's balance sheet management policy. Before we dive in, there are two housekeeping items I'd like to mention. First, if any of you, our gentle listeners, has a question or comment, just send them to us at macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com. And second, if you like what you're hearing and you have a minute, please rate us five stars. Okay, enough of the housekeeping. Let's begin with my conversation with Matt Bush. Welcome, Matt, and thanks again for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Jay. Great to be back. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, To begin, uh, after more than a year of inflation surprising us to the upside, we're finally seeing some good news on the inflation front. So what is this good news, and do you think the inflation threat is behind us? There have been several pieces of good news on inflation over the last week or two. But it is important to note that this is just the early stages of what it will take to get inflation back to levels the Fed is comfortable with. So I think the biggest piece of good news was the July CPI report, where both headline and core CPI inflation cooled more than expected last month. Falling energy prices drove most of the outright decline in headline CPI, but we also did see other categories with outright falling prices like airfares, hotels, and used vehicles. And it was also encouraging to see core goods inflation moderate, with goods, even excluding vehicles prices, down to 3.7% annualized over the month. Continued supply chain improvement should help drive further disinflation for this category, and falling import prices should help. Uh, And we saw import prices, even excluding petroleum products, have the largest monthly decline since 2015 in the July data. And that came after two declines in the prior two months. So I think there are reasons to be optimistic that goods disinflation will continue. And even looking at services, 
Inflation showed some moderation in the CPI report. Rent inflation remains red hot, but it did cool down a bit with rent declining from 9.7% annualized to 8.8%. So rent inflation alone is still contributing 2.5 percentage points to headline CPI, so we need to see much more of a slowdown. But it is encouraging that we're not seeing further acceleration at this point. And then beyond shelter, we saw other prices cool in the CPI data and data from the producer price index, which was lower than expected, suggests that service providers are seeing lower price growth. And the inputs to the core PCE index, which is really the, the main measure that the Fed targets, suggests that number will be even lower than the CPI number. So again, this is all encouraging news, but a continued moderation in service sector inflation and inflation more broadly is going to require the labor market and wage growth to cool off significantly. And the recent data that we've seen on that front is less encouraging. Uh, the wage growth tracker from the Atlanta Fed shows wages are running around a 6% pace in July. And last week's data on productivity showed another quarter of sharply negative productivity growth, meaning that unit labor costs, which is wages controlling for productivity changes, are growing at a 10.6% annualized pace. So much too high to be consistent with 2% inflation. Now, just uh, as a definitional point, the difference between deflation and disinflation. Sure. Deflation is outright declines in prices. Disinflation is a lower pace of inflation. So less rapid increases in prices. Right. And so we'll probably have a combination of those two functions uh, as uh, monetary policy takes hold. That's right. I would I would expect to see some deflation in goods prices eventually on services, shelter and, and other services costs. Uh, we'll see continued inflation, but we think and hopefully uh, at a lower pace. Now, Matt, you mentioned the labor market. What did you make of the strong July jobs report, um, which, again, was much stronger than the consensus? Yeah, the strong July jobs report was a surprise given signs of slowing economic momentum elsewhere in the data. But I think it was a pretty clear takeaway from what the jobs numbers are saying, which is that the labor market is super tight and it's getting even tighter at a still rapid pace. Uh, so we saw a gain of over 500,000 jobs in the non-farm payrolls data, well above expectations. And that strength was corroborated by the household surveys measure of employment which grew at an even faster 611,000 if we view it through the same methodology as the payroll survey. And probably of even more relevance to Fed policy, we saw average hourly earnings or wage growth accelerate to 5.8% annualized, which was reversing what had looked to be some cooling off in wage pressures. And I think one reason that wage growth remains so hot is that the recovery in labor supply continues to disappoint. We saw the overall labor force participation rate fall again in July, and probably even more concerning, uh, the prime age participation rate, which is ages 25 to 54, that's less impacted by demographic factors. That rate has basically gone nowhere over the last few months. And so if labor supply isn't recovering despite strong demand and high wage growth, we need to see labor demand reduced further to bring down wage growth and, by extension, inflation. So on the one hand, we have this really strong labor market readings. But on the other, we have other indicators of economic activity showing you know, outright slowness. Uh, how do you reconcile these two things? And has your view of recession risk changed? 
Well, first, I should note that, you know, we shouldn't overreact too much to you know, any, any one or two data points. We've seen pretty big revisions to the payrolls data over the past couple of years. So we should keep in mind that this data may look different in a few months. Uh, but with that caveat, you know, we've done some work that shows a lot of the indicators where we are seeing weakness, places like housing, manufacturing, consumer sentiment. Uh, these things usually peak and roll over well in advance of employment which typically doesn't peak until a month or two into recession. Uh, so this divergence isn't entirely uh, unprecedented. And I think this dynamic uh, could be even greater in this cycle because of what we're hearing uh, in reports about so-called labor hoarding, meaning that businesses are having had such a hard time finding workers over the last year. And now we're seeing demand slow but businesses are reluctant to lay off workers because they're worried about having hiring difficulties again when de demand eventually comes back. So that dynamic could help explain the divergence between the jobs data and the activity data, uh, which we're also seeing in deeply negative productivity growth. So kind of adding this up, we continue to see high risk of a recession, especially heading into 2023, when it will get harder and harder to hang on to these workers as demand will remain soft. And really what it all comes back to is the Fed, who is saying they need to see slower demand and more labor slack to get inflation down and will cause a recession if necessary to achieve that. It's ironic that it seems this year the nuances are more important than ever, and yet the Fed is going to be disregarding those and focusing on the headline. Yeah, they've told us that headline inflation is an important dynamic for them, given its role in forming inflation expectations. Households and businesses are, are sensitive to headline inflation, uh, more so than any nuanced view of inflation. Uh, fortunately, we've gotten some relief on the headline inflation front with lower energy prices. Um, you know, energy prices won't fall forever. So at some point, that, that benefit from lower oil prices is going to disappear from the data, and we'll have to look at these more measured, uh, these more nuanced measures of inflation, like core inflation or trend mean inflation, which are still running much too hot for the Fed. Got it. Well, let's look at another uh, thing that the Fed looks at, which is uh, their evaluation of financial conditions as a variable in executing monetary policy. What does that mean exactly, financial conditions, and how are current financial conditions factoring into the Fed's calculus? So raising the Fed funds rate actually has little impact on the real economy. Um, so to monitor how Fed policy and Fed communication is having an impact, the Fed looks at a broad array of financial variables that do have an actual economic impact. This includes longer term interest rates, uh, credit spreads, equity prices, uh, the value of the dollar. And what we saw this year was that overall financial conditions have been tightening rapidly for most of the year, which is exactly what the Fed was intending in order to cool down the overheated economy to bring down inflation. But starting about a month ago, we started to see financial conditions start to ease again. And that easing has been pretty sizable. Financial conditions are now back to levels we had in May prior to two 75 basis point rate hikes by the Fed. Uh, so some of this easing is probably due to external factors like lower oil prices, but a lot of it has to do with the shift in market perceptions of Fed policy. Really, this idea that the Fed is close to pivoting and could actually be cutting rates early next year. 
So I think the market is extrapolating forward some of the good news on inflation that we talked about. But if financial conditions ease too much, then economic growth and inflation could reaccelerate. So the Fed's really going to feel the need to push back against these easier financial conditions. And you're starting to see them do that with speeches explicitly saying that market pricing is wrong and they may have to go further than the market thinks. And I think you'll see more of this pushback from the Fed at the Jackson Hole conference coming up and probably the September FOMC meeting as well. So cutting rates or hiking rates is a very blunt instrument for uh, impacting the economy. Very blunt instrument and a very indirect instrument. Again, it has to work through these other financial conditions that actually affect spending and saving decisions by households and businesses. So we have inflation that, while it's moderating, will stay elevated. We have a strong job jobs market, and we have easing financial conditions. Now, all of these are things that the Fed is trying to reverse against a backdrop of slowing economic activity. So factoring all this in, how do you expect the Fed will navigate these dynamics over the next several months or even beyond? Yeah, I think we have to go back to what the Fed has told us pretty directly, and that's their focus is getting inflation under control. That's job number one. And we've had some good news on that front, but as I said, it's nowhere near enough yet for the Fed to stop raising rates. So we think another large rate hike is likely at the September meeting. Uh, you know, Whether it's 50 or 75 basis points will depend on the data between now and then. Uh, probably most importantly, the August CPI number. I think after September, in an ideal world, they'd like to downshift back to 25 basis point hikes now that they're at or above uh, a neutral level of the Fed funds rate. And if the inflation data does improve like we expect, I think they will be able to shift down to 25 basis points in November. But we're looking at a very data-dependent Fed here. So, you know, another 50 basis point hike in November is still on the table, depending on how the data evolves. I think once we get toward the end of the year and rates are up around 3.5%, I think the Fed's going to think they're sufficiently into restrictive territory where they can stop and assess the impact that tight policy is having and see how the data evolves from there. And at that point, I think you you are really more truly data dependent and policy becomes more of a a two-way bet. If inflation still is too high, they'll keep hiking. If they judge that inflation is on the right trajectory and there's enough signs of economic weakness, uh, they'll stay at those levels of rates or we think later in the year could even be cutting rates. And let's not forget that these hikes that they've put in place thus far have all happened very quickly, and the effects of monetary policy work with a lag. So we may not even really be seeing yet some of the impact they're hoping for. Definitely. And this is a uh, point that Powell made uh, at the July FOMC press conference, that monetary policy works with a lag. And as you said, the rapid pace of rate hikes means that lag is is really going to take a while to kick in. Um, so getting to getting policy to neutral was sort of a no brainer for them. We, we, we knew we had to get policy there. Now that we're there, uh, they're going to want to start to downshift the pace and see how these rate hikes are impacting the real economy. No matter a little bit later in the podcast, we're going to hear from Aditya Agrawal, who's the head of the agency MBS desk here at Guggenheim. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's going to want to talk about how the balance sheet component 
of monetary policy is going to be affecting his market. How do you think this part of monetary policy will be playing out? Well, first, we should note that the pace of balance sheet runoff is going to double starting in September. And if we think about the impact of this, you know, even the Fed admits that the transmission mechanism of the balance sheet to the market and then the market to the economy is not well understood uh, and that impacts from the balance sheet can be non-linear and sudden uh, like we saw in 2018. Um, and so the Fed, you know, in their models estimates that the total impact of balance sheet runoff will be equivalent to about 50 basis points of rate hikes. And that kind of just slowly ramps up over time. But I think that the risk is that as rates get more restrictive, the economy slows further, the impact of the balance sheet tightening could have a larger than intended impact and eventually cause some sort of financial accident somewhere. We just don't know when or where. Um, and the Fed's really going to have to just wait and see what happens because they themselves don't know uh, quite how it impacts the market. So quantitative tightening, which we're talking about here, sounds like an even blunter uh, instrument than interest rate policy. Definitely. If, if rate hikes are uh, not well understood, the balance sheet is even less well understood, in part because it's a relatively more modern tool. Um, now, Matt, we've, we've been focused on the U.S., uh, but there's a lot going on beyond our shores, uh, macroeconomically speaking. Um, they say that the Fed is the world's central bank. So what are some of the effects of our monetary policy on global economies? Probably the biggest impact we're seeing is a, a stronger and stronger dollar. Uh, that's partially you know, by design. Uh, from the Fed, a strong dollar helps reduce import prices uh, and by extension, broader inflation in the U.S. But the flip side of that is that in other countries, they're importing inflation as their currencies weaken. Uh, and that's exacerbating the inflationary impact of food and energy price shocks and requiring foreign central banks to raise rates. Um, there's also a negative impact of a stronger dollar from, for countries borrowing in U.S. dollars, uh, which is particularly prevalent in emerging markets, where local currency depreciation raises the debt burden uh, and makes debt distress more likely. So you have this headwind from tighter Fed policy and a strong dollar coming on top of an energy crunch in Europe, uh, COVID and property market woes in China, and growing instability in emerging markets. Uh, and you have a pretty negative outlook for the global economy. So some foreign central banks have been raising rates, as, as have we, uh, but then you have China uh, cutting rates because they're looking at a much different picture. Um, so at some level, these are all connected, though. They are, yeah. And, and, and I think really the main theme is um, a really challenging economic outlook, no matter where you go around the world. Um, you know, China has less of a domestic inflation problem, but more of a problem with COVID that a lot of countries have moved beyond given their commitment to this COVID zero policy and problems they're having in, in the property sector. You know, a lot of other countries are dealing with inflation um, and requiring tighter monetary policy to fight that. Whether, no matter how you add it up, though, the impact is slowing economic growth around the world. 
So, uh, Matt, we've covered a lot of territory here. Um, how would you sum it up uh, for our uh, for our listeners? You know, I would just say that this is a time of really exceptional volatility in the economic data, uh, where things are moving extremely fast. And you know, we should be willing to update our views as the data evolves, and allow for a fairly wide range of outcomes given the unique macro environment that we're in. Well, thank you very much again for your time, Matt, and for uh, you know explaining some of these things to us. I hope you come again and visit soon. Great. Thank you, Jay. Next, we caught up with Aditya Agrawal, head of our agency MBS sector team. Adi, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Jay. I'd like to start with a quick recap before getting into the current state of the market and notable developments. To recap, The MBS sector struggled for most of this year as the Fed and banks withdrew from the market and other buyers, mainly money managers like us, required wider spreads to absorb supply. However, there has been a clear shift in sentiment and momentum in the MBS market over the past month or so. We've seen strong outperformance across the sector in July and this month, as it got cheap enough combined with the market reading a less hawkish Fed going forward. Although we are still constructive in our outlook for the sector, we acknowledge that at current valuation levels, MBS are more exposed to broader macro events and Fed policy changes compared to a couple months ago. Another thing to note is that MBS are negatively convex assets. The current shape of the yield curve, along with higher rate volatility, increases the option cost embedded in MBS. The market could demand wider spreads, specifically option-adjusted spreads, as the buyer base switches to more relative value-oriented investors. Jay, once we dig a little deeper into my sector, we find a few interesting trends that are developing. Just a couple coupon buckets, 2% and 2.5% make up majority of the MBS index. Most of it was originated in the years 2020 and 2021 when rates were much lower than now. This was also the time when the Fed was most active in buying MBS during QE4. As a result, the Fed now owns majority of the issuance in these coupons. Banks likely own much of the rest, as they were the other main buyer then. So money managers find it challenging to gain close to index exposure, as there is minimal organic supply in these two coupons, but they form a disproportionately large part of the various mortgage indices. This results in unusually rich valuations for them, and by extension, the MBS index overall. This is yet another reason where a passive investor in the MBS index is forced to buy rich assets, as opposed to an active investor that can make better relative value investments based on all the opportunities available in the market. In fact, if the Fed actively sells MBS, it could improve liquidity for these set 
of MBS index investors by providing much needed supply there. Speaking of the Fed, as they have hiked rates 150 basis points in the past couple months, primary mortgage rates have declined from close to 6% to around 5% now. Since rents and home prices are still rising fast, this move is not in line to the message the Fed would like to communicate. Therefore, it is still possible for the Fed to sell MBS even though the market is pricing it out. Also, from next month onwards, they will reduce their U.S. Treasury holdings by $60 billion a month and MBS holdings by $35 billion a month. By our estimates, the MBS holdings may decrease by only $25 billion a month passively at current rates. So, they may consider selling some additional amount of MBS to reach their $35 billion per month target. If they don't, the MBS share of the holdings will increase over time, and this again is against their stated goals. To summarize, MBS doesn't look as attractive in the current environment after the strong recent outperformance. There are still relative value opportunities where the risk of Fed policy changes would be less and have better starting valuations. That's all I have. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Aditya. And thanks once again to Matt Bush and Aditya Agrawal. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for our podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we will do our best to answer them either on air, on a future episode, or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long! Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate.
This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.